Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hello, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. And we are coming at you at our new fortnightly release time. And this week, I have again with me the illustrious Zach Armstrong from Call of Discovery. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing well, Blake. Thanks for having me back. It is it is good to be back helping, uh, giving some help to my past self. Yes, exactly, right? So uh, it's, it's always great to have you on the show. We have such a long-standing friendship within the game going back to the original Grand Championship in the U.S. where we got to officially meet and hang out, which was a, a blast from the That's past. That's right. <laughs> it was. No, you see what I did there? Did you see what I did there? Yeah, that that I was do. not planned either. I do. <laughs> so, with with that little teaser there, we are going to be coming at you again with a topic that is looking back at the bouncing Death Quark series and seeing how something they talked about back then relates now, and then we are going to visit the segment which will be reoccurring now. And uh, actually, that is the one thing Zach brought with him coming on the show. And uh, when he decides to move along on to the next podcast to be a Maverick on, that will stay behind because it is just a nice segment if uh, Zach doesn't mind. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, I might recreate it elsewhere, but uh, I think there's enough cards in Keyforge that it can it can be. Um, I think as many people as want to could really tackle it, and we wouldn't run out anytime soon. So, <laughs> no, the obscurity of the cards will be what makes it fun. This is true. This is true. So this week we will be the segment for that is going to actually be blast from the past. That is why I made that that fun little reference a moment ago. Uh, it's actually a favorite card that both uh, Zach and I share in that regard. So we'll get to that in the latter part of the show. But first, we're going to be revisiting the Bouncing Death Quark episode. It is episode 11. And Zach, what is this episode? It is called Flexible Board States, where uh, our lovely Bouncing Death Quark hosts, Kiramode and Kodamron, talked about uh, board states in Keyforge fluctuate a lot, and what does that mean? How, how, and why do you take advantage of a board when you have it? Um, and kind of what what does it mean from you know a competitive standpoint that this game is going to uh, have board states that change all the time? Uh, yeah, yeah. So they 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 took their dive into that, and I believe this came out when it was uh, just Call of the Archons out. So they're kind of coming at it from that perspective. Uh, but yeah, that's what they that's what they dove into. I honestly really like that we a lot of the things we've been revisiting. I th- actually not a lot. All of the things we have been re- revisiting exist within the first set and the way people felt then, because a lot of things have happened since then, and we are even in a state where, as a result, we get to really see the progression. And I think the way they talked about the game then compared to where it is now is such a nice way of being able to look back at things. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, why don't you give a little overview, Zach, about what they really said about this? And then we can kind of go on from there about how it's kind of evolved. Does the rule still apply? The The great discussions that we've 
been having on this show when revisiting these Bouncing Death Quark episodes. Yeah, so they said a few things about flexible board states. Uh, one is they pointed out, as if you're listening to Tell From Future Self, <laughs> uh, at this point, you you know this, uh, the restriction in other a lot of other TCGs is resources. You pay resources of some kind to put a card uh, out on the table. And of course, in this game, uh, it's based on houses, what faction is the card in, and that's the restriction. Um, and so what that turns into is a, a kind of a, a, a truism, which I, I think there's more nuance to it nowadays, but a truism they landed on for that is that when you use your board, you spite your hand, meaning mm-hmm. if you have a board full of one house, it's likely that uh, you've got other houses in your hand. So if you want to use your board, you're not going to be playing from your hand. And if you want to use your hand, you're not going to be using your board. And while I think that's generally true, I think you know enough effects have come in that churn hands that uh, this is kind of less true than it than it was in the past. And I also think people are better at uh, hand shaping these days. Um, this yes. is yeah, totally. Uh, two other points they brought up is that uh, uh, in uh, other card games where you can use all your creatures at once if you've paid for them already, uh, a six card board is going to be better than a five card board. Just you know, simple math. Uh, but in Keyforge, it might not be better than a five-card board. If you have a five-card board or a five-creature board that's all of one house, but there's a six-creature board that's two, 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 that five creatures of one house board is going to be better. Uh, and I believe this is also, I think this is their first episode where they referenced uh, the term that I still use called the delta. Uh, the difference between you and your opponent in uh, p- potential amber gain, primarily in how much creatures can reap for. So those were uh, they wanted to talk about board wipes and a few other things and strategic choices based on these things. But those were kind of their big points about what does it look like, uh, what do Keyforge boards look like, and how do they how do they affect the game and the choices you make. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were. There were great points, and and like they said, you know, using the board to go into check, and then versus also not being in check, mm-hmm. using the delta in that regard, like it, it makes a difference. Like if you have a hand that you're not going to cycle necessarily when they're bringing that up, and then you could use your board, but you won't be in check doing so, and you're not cycling at the same time. You need to kind of look at that that decision versus if you did utilize your board and whatever you have in your hand, you would go into check. That actually makes a decision that has to be made based on that because sometimes the fact that you're not pressing for check is the the X factor in which way you go. And they seem to actually, I've noticed, talk about this a lot, is the decision to be pressing for check should always be there. And if you're deciding between one choice or another the one that puts you in check no matter what is always the correct choice because it makes sense in a lot of ways if you're pressing check that means you're getting closer to the end your opponent has to respond which means it could also derail what their next turn original plan was so i find it just a really nice baseline to keep in mind when you're doing things yeah it's not a bad heuristic i know people like to call it abc yeah. a while back, right? Always be checking. And I don't think it's a bad 
rule of thumb to go by. I think as you get more and more plays under your belt, though, uh, you'll start to be able to discern when going for check in one particular instance uh, might be overreaching, right? Yes, uh, yes might be true. overreaching. So I think I think that's not. I think that's a great place to start, especially as you are forming all these KeyForge rules and KeyForge strategy in your brain to process a board state through and say, okay, what's my best way forward? Uh, if there's a way to get to check, getting to check uh, can certainly, I think, be. Um, a good way to uh, a good way to approach the game for a while, at least until you start seeing uh, you. Well, seeing that fail actually is probably the best way to learn. Is you stick with yeah. it and you go, oh, they took me off check, and now I don't have a way to get ahead. <laughs> and you I know? guess the other way too is also it, with new decks as well. If you're unfamiliar with the deck, any any sort of unfamiliarity, these are they have basically BDQ created these great rules, and then of course all rules are made to be broken once you understand the rules fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except for uh, the uh, rules of the game. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Something else I like that they mentioned is uh, remember that your board doesn't give you value forever, which in mm-hmm. a particular game is going to be dependent on uh, do you have a board wipe that you're planning on using or do they have a board wipe that they may use at some point? Uh, and remembering to get value out of your board uh, again, you know, might not always be the right choice, but thinking of it that way where, well, I've got, you know, four or five creatures out of the single house. I think they've got a board wipe uh, and they, they might have it in hand and I know they have it in their deck somewhere. This might be a good time to go ahead and, you know, reap out for five uh, if I think that that board wipe is coming, especially if you know they have it in their deck and you're reasonably far ahead on the board. If you've got a big delta that might be tempting them to to throw that board wipe down. 100%. I mean, the fleeting board states point that they made is very relevant. And how very convenient that we can reference the last episode where reading an Archon card becomes yes. very prudent because for both points of can they, how easily can they take you off check and how easily can they get rid of your board are two things that you need to be aware of in terms of how many cards have they played versus how many of those cards that will affect what you're trying to do in terms of either being taken off check or dealing with your board have been shown because the odds of that being used will obviously increase as their deck thins. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They uh, And two things they mentioned to keep in mind with these board wipes specifically that uh, I, I think really this is kind of untraining from other card games, which... Uh, was certainly the context they were in as uh, I think they'd both played. I don't know if they both played Magic. They were both big Star Wars Destiny players. Yeah. Um, but the two things they mentioned to keep in mind is that you do drop to six at the end of your turn, so it's easier to claim momentum than it would be in other games where you might just yes. end up with one or two cards in hand if you already committed to the board. Um, so in that way, it actually protects you a little bit from overextending, although it's still very possible in Keyforge. Um, and then you flip your deck when you need to to draw again. So really, it's about the speed and the tempo at which those creatures hit the board. Because uh, except for some extreme edge cases, you know you're always going to be able to keep getting creatures back out on the board to to reap and to to fight your battles. Mm-hmm. Yep, that is um, that is very true. There is also you know they you mentioned it briefly before was the uh, building boards and handcrafting 
which mm-hmm. is is quite interesting. It's like how when you're building your board, you're actually crafting your hand for the future, and it's relevant with these board wiping abilities that can happen where you can utilize it and if you lose it you most likely set up to have a big turn in one of your other houses which i think reigns pretty true to this day the fact that if you use a board and i think the bigger board states are even more abundant and more readily available within decks than they were in Call of the Archons. We, we've we seen an increase in board states since Call of the Archon quite considerably, I would find. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you haven't run into this in your own Keyforge, what, what we kind of mean by handcrafting is generally speaking with when you've got 12 cards in three houses, right, in your deck, uh, say I open with four Brobnar cards on turns like one and two, um, and in my hand, I have one or maybe two Brobnar cards that I just keep drawing into. Um, if I keep using my Brobnar board and playing or discarding uh, that one or two Brobnar cards that keeps coming into my hand, I'm getting value from my Brobnar board while I am pulling the Brobnar out of the rest of the deck, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, setting myself up to have bigger turns, at least playing from hand-wise, uh, bigger turns later in the game for the other two houses um, by thinning it out and just kind of playing the numbers, playing the numbers that way. Uh, it's it's a unique thing to Keyforge. Um, it is a great way to lose instantly to Restoring Guntus, and it's a <laughs> great yeah. way to play smartly in every other kind of game. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're not wrong there. I mean, it's there's there's two instances I find that I. I handcraft quite aggressively, and oddly enough, both times is with Untamed, generally. Mm. Like mm-hmm. in Coda era, I find that I will, especially when you have like the Hunting Witch, Key Charger, Chota combos, I will resist playing my Untamed and do everything else until I get that really full Ember Burst turn. And I mean, it usually, in the deck that I have at least, holds the advantage of being able to just do that and then because you're taking your time building and you go, you know, like you have two untamed cards and then you have three and then you have four as turns go on, you start building it up and you're playing less and using your board, you're generally moving forward in the game so you can almost have it by the time it's crafted, you're most likely able to close out the game with that burst. And in the modern game, I find that having a DAV deck, I really like to wait and have a mm. big turn when I drop DAV down the Dark Amber Vault, for those not familiar with the acronym, and just then go and just draw a bunch of cards and get a really big turn in that way. It's It almost becomes like a library access in a way, but you're using mutants instead of just playing a card. Um, I can find there's some really fun combos there, and I like to craft that because if people know you have a DAV and they also have some sort of artifact control, it may not last more than one turn. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Zach, but I will sometimes hold my artifact control for something like that. Oh, for sure. For a Dark Amber Vault, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. So that's that's the fun of handcrafting. And I mean, speaking of, they, they did mention handcrafting as part of this in in for quite a period of the episode. And you mentioned as well, like, since then, where have we gone? Mm-hmm. And the great thing is, is that now with the introduction, I would say particularly of Star Alliance, 
the ability to just, and I think Star Alliance is quintessential for where you can actually call and use your board over and over again. And you almost yeah. have like a zero drawback because you're still house cheating so frequently that you're actually staying within the realm of what you would normally be doing if you called any house, but you're just calling Star Alliance over and over again, which makes them such a powerhouse, especially when they emerged and worlds collide. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot more. Call of the Archons was fairly straightforward as far as what house cheating looked like. Um, but I that think, was Logos. Yeah, Logos. Uh, and so all the, the discarding, the house cheating, um, the different ways to, to manage to manage your hand um, have, have given that a lot more, more nuance than was specific uh, you know, specific uh, to to call the archons. Like at one point in this episode, Kodamron mentions that he loves to have two houses that are creature heavy uh, in a deck, right? And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, that that's solid. I'd I'd go for that in in sealed if I had that option. But as uh, that's a very call of the archons versus call of the archons uh, <laughs> specific strategy, because yeah. I have so many decks that want to put just like uh, one house on the board or or all three, or it doesn't matter. It's just whichever one I get to first. <laughs> yeah. No, it's but, very true. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so true. And um, so what do you think about the idea they had? Because they, they do mention a lot in the episode. They spent a good a good chunk talking about the the fighting aspect of of mm. using your boards. Like having a heavy board state and you know the flexible state of it and then using it to fight and they both had actually kind of opposing views in some ways but but then there were certain aspects that they were completely on the same page yeah yeah they certainly had different preferences for what to do in a particular uh situation the the one they imagined was say i have three creatures to your two creatures and do i go ahead and reap for three or do I reap for one and fight twice? It's sort of a delta of like one. Well, that's not really delta of one either way. Uh, one gets you three amber and leaves the opponent with two creatures. Uh, one gets me one amber, uh, but uh, uh, but denies the opponent um, any creatures to to use. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and it all depends on the math. Like if uh, if you're trading the creatures, then it really is a delta of one in mm-hmm. either instance. One is just much faster than the other. Um, but if you can fight and your creatures survive, you're saying, okay, now I've got a delta of three opponent. What are you going to do in response to that? Because now I can reap through for three with a much bigger delta than uh, with a much bigger delta. Yeah. Yeah. And then as they were talking about, you know, the fighting, the, the one thing they said that I thought was very interesting and I thought almost very coda was they talked about how there was you know the elusive creatures and how you should never fight into them because it's not (laughs) worth the two which I thought in coda like they mentioned not even John Smith which is fine but Mm -hmm. but I think in the modern game there's some elusive creatures that you need to waste those two creatures fighting one and then the other to get it off the board because leaving them on is far too detrimental to just then ignoring it and letting them do whatever they want. Yeah, I would agree with a sentiment that 
the elusive being a you know uh, fighting twice to take out one creature trade uh that inefficiency there does feel bad when you're the one choosing to fight mm-hmm. um but uh, you're right it is a very complicated value judgment of is it worth anything else these two creatures could do for them to go ahead and fight, which is, I think, why ping damage, why direct damage and assault are just so so valuable because you get to uh, you get to just not worry about it. You just get to go <laughs> straight to the removal. It's it's very true. There's as more creatures came that became more necessary to be dealt with. There's also the fact that more tools to deal with those creatures also came into the game, which is uh, which is a nice balance when you think about it. So in summary, really, in the context of board states and Keyforge are flexible. You got to keep watch out for board wipes. They're divided. You know, your creatures are divided by a faction. The the strategic choices that they ended up talking about at the end, I think, are the key strategic choice that all of these factors in Keyforge lead to, right? Which is balancing. Uh, reaping versus staying on top of fighting down the opponent's board. And that's in very general terms, right? Uh, Are you trying to play a control angle to keep the opponent from going forward to throw a wrench into their plans? Or are you trying to reap out and accelerate and race towards the end? It's it's a dynamic, very reminiscent of uh, the old Magic the Gathering article, uh, Who's the Beatdown? Uh, which I would love to see a Keyforge version of because it's still very relevant in Keyforge, right? Do you keep pushing and saying, okay, hey, try to stop me, try to stop me, try to stop me, and then you get across the finish line? But what if they are able to control you and you run out of gas in the tank before you get to the finish line and then they just coast coast by you, right? It's this mm-hmm. dynamic of who has got resources left, who's going to use them strategically in what way, uh, for one person to get across the finish line first um, and who needs to be racing to get there while they have the chance to and who needs to be sitting back and just denying the other person their options as much as possible. Um, so I think that is where there's a lot of space to explore um, in really high-end Keyforge, right, as far as trying to be think critically about how to win a high-level game, whether you're using high-powered decks or not. Uh, that's the mm-hmm. dynamic you want to be thinking of. Yes. And obviously one thing that we didn't mention and should be noted for flexible board states is the fact that warding exists now and it didn't when they talked about this really Mm. adds a whole nother level of complexity to trying to deal with a board and problem creatures and the use you can get out of a board and plan. Yeah. Um, Because you can potentially have a warded board on your side and hit up a board wipe so it's only getting rid of your wards and it's very one-sided and then that delta is really going to shift in your favor so it's kind of a, a fun aspect with talking about board states that they could not talk about because it was not part of the game yeah yeah that's right that's right for sure all right so now we're going to move on to our segment zach what is the segment that you've introduced called This segment is called, When Is This Card Good? We pick a card and we ask that question. Instead of simply rating the card, something like a 1 through 5, 1 through 10, which those kind of systems are certainly very handy, uh, we instead take a holistic approach and we say, okay, I don't care if this card is good, I don't care if this card is bad, but when is it good? 
and we look at all the kind of game state factors it interacts with uh, so that we can play it uh, more intelligently. Perfect. So this week, we're coming at you with a card called Blast from the Past, which is a Saurian card. Oh, it is so good. It is one of my favorite cards that I think is very underrated. So, Zach, why don't you go into everything about this card? Why do you love this card on the surface without going into any details? And tell us all about its features, because I feel like you are the aficionado with all the details that a card possesses. (laughs) <laughs> yes, uh, with just a little bit of help from our friends at Archon Arcana, I don't think I've ever prepped for anything content-related without ending up on that Agreed. wiki. Uh, but Blast from the Past, it's a Saurian action with no bonus pips. It's an uncommon, only found in Mass Mutation. Uh, we do have to shout out the art here. Uh, if you haven't looked it up, if you don't remember it, look it up. It's this giant kind of amber-powered Apatosaurus skeleton blasting up from the ground. There's some figure on a hill seemingly raising it. Um, it's so fun. This is by, uh, the art's by Broken, uh, located in Chile. They've done 21 other Keyforge cards. Quite good. Or 21 total Keyforge cards. And the text of the card is, Play, Exalt, a friendly creature. Archive a Saurian creature from your discard pile. Deal damage to the archive... Deal damage equal to the archived creature's power to an enemy creature. So it plays with several things here, exalting a friendly creature, archiving a Saurian creature from your discard pile, and then doing some direct damage. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, the things that I love about this card is it's providing recursion. Mm -hmm. And not only recursion, but it's recursion that you get to choose when you're going to use the card because it's going into your archives and it also provides removal by being able to deal direct damage to an enemy creature those are the gist of why it's so amazing for me oh yeah agreed the archive is the perfect place to have a creature whether you're going to use it next turn or you're going to save it and the cost, most things I'm going to target with Blast for the past, the, the archiving, are going to be worth that Exalted Amber, even mm-hmm. if that Exalted Amber ends up in my opponent's pool. You know, we might break even if it's a, a Senator Shrix. Um, it might be a great cost if I'm getting a Perfectus Ludo back. Uh, yeah, and that that's assuming... You know, we don't do anything productive with the Exalted Amber in Mass Mutation Saurian, which there's plenty of ways to use that Amber to your advantage. So it's a uh, the cost. Uh, the cost is pretty lenient for um, all the good stuff you get from this card, from the archiving and the the damage too. Oh, totally. And I mean, never mind the fact that you can use Console Primus to just reap and move that from your creature onto an opponent's creature, and if you have something else that can do this sort of damage or you're planning on attacking something, then that's that's no longer even an issue. You basically created an extra resource for yourself because, I mean, that's the great thing about Saurians is there are ways to not have to leave the Ember on your creature after you exalt it. So just a very versatile card that I feel is really not spoken about enough. Would you agree, Zach? Yeah, I certainly ha- haven't heard people really sing its praises uh, a lot. I think part of the reason is likely because um, there's only so many like Saurian decks 
that people really like have played at a high tier competitive level for mass mutation, um, you know, during, during the last two years or so, uh, I think they exist, but I think in, uh, I think in sealed and a lot of other contexts, this card does an awful, an awful lot of work. Mm-hmm. It does an awful yep. lot of work. Totally. So when is this card good? So, oh, there's so many times this card, this, this card is good. Uh, so whenever there's a Saurian creature in your discard pile, right? You've, you've got a target, um, a favorite one is if you've got a Saurian creature in hand that you don't want to play yet, and you've got an enemy creature to kill. Uh, say somebody has just opened with a, a Dusk Witch, right, or a Hunting Witch, something like that, uh, and you can even pitch your Citizen's Tricks to the discard pile and then use this. And if you don't have a friendly creature, you don't even have to exalt, um, and you can just you can just shoot whatever's across the board at at basically no cost and like we mentioned earlier still getting that that archive bonus which is great mm-hmm. and i mean um, like you, even if you have only one certain creature you could literally run that into something and it can <laughs> then right. be gone and then you archive it so there's your card that you didn't have available and boom bob's your uncle you got uh, you got yourself nothing to throw ember on potentially and at the same time, you're getting to recur that card at your convenience. And this being in mass mutations as well, I think that part of the game that is so great is you could have a bunch of maybe icons on this creature that makes you want it to mm. be gone and then be able to be brought back. Oh, for sure. For sure. And uh, this is in the set where in mass mutation where the developers really said, okay, let's not be scared of a big power creature, right? We don't have to completely nerf a creature if it has eight power or more, you know, like a NARP or a Groggins. They said, what are some other ways we can make big creatures that have just the right kind of drawbacks? So this card is in the set with Gargantodon, which is 16 power, Galatops, which is 12 power, Pterodactyl, which is also 12 power. Uh, you can target all of these, and even though they fight for less than their printed power, uh, you're just dealing damage equal to the power. And one of my favorite mm-hmm. cheese strats with this, uh, and it works beautifully in many, many ways, is the bottom half of Deosilis. It counts as a creature card. It has printed power, so you can actually discard the bottom half of Deosilis and then archive it for later to play your you know, to try to get a better chance at playing your gargantuan creature and also deal 20 damage to whatever the heck you want to deal 20 damage to. So, yeah, when you when you mentioned this, it was something that I'd never consider because I don't have any decks with it. Obviously, it's going to be one of the more rare forms right. of having uh, this card work in that capacity since it's also an uncommon. But I was just blown away. I was like, you can do that? I'm like, whoa, I love this card even more. (laughs) Like, it's just such a fantastic way to get to uh, enjoy things like that. Yeah. And like you were talking about, which I hadn't even really written down, just all the advantages of archiving a card, right, are present here. Mm -hmm. And that is... uh, that point is great for Deosilis because you're getting to store one half of your gigantic creature. Maybe, uh, maybe you haven't seen, you know, your it's coming or the top half yet, and you can just archive that, and you're you're set to drop that Deosilis down uh, <laughs> once you once you see the other cards. Yeah, it's it is truly something impressive. 
it is truly something impressive. I guess you also have, like we've been talking about, if you don't want to be holding on to your Deosilis, you could technically still archive the top half, even though it doesn't have the mm. printed ember, so you're not chained, correct? Yes, it's still a creature card. And so you can, uh, it counts as archiving a Saurian creature from your discard pile. Uh, it just doesn't have power. So you would just deal zero damage. But if you wanted to, you could certainly you could certainly use this card to archive the top half. So you're basically paying one ember to not chain yourself if Ducilius is something that is important yeah. for your strategy, which is, which is also a cool use of this, but probably on the lesser side of good. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Um, and I did some math just because I wanted to see because I feel like I get such a value out of Blast from the past because I think I have a f- several uh, decks that I enjoy where where I can play it. Um, so the average power of the nineteen common, uncommon, or special rarity Saurian creatures in Mass Mutation is five point seven eight power. So it's nearly six. Um, there's only three two power, or excuse me, there's only two three power creatures, which is uh, Consul Primus and Citizen Shrix. There's several four power creatures, then a ton of five power and uh, up creatures. So lots of really amazing targets for this. Like you are more than likely, it's, it's tough to have a bad blast from the past deck is mm-hmm. really what I'm saying. Yeah, it's true. Like you're going to get that removal value from it no matter what. It's just a matter of determining if I I think a lot of the times the most common way I'm playing this is actually discarding a creature from my hand and then Mm -hmm. throwing it in my archives. And if we're going, which is very appropriate, by a BDQ style of analysis, I find that sometimes Saurian is not my main house in mass mutation. I find. Oh, sure. Yeah, or it may not be just a a main house, in which case this is even better because you know you're not looking to utilize your board from the Saurian perspective as much. So being able to just archive that card and use it in a future time or not at all, just so it's not a part of your deck so you can get into what you want more of the meat and potatoes. It just provides that ability to have that outlook. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Um I had like a note or two on when is this card not good? And it's it's really it's really very straightforward and doesn't happen that often, right? It's when the exalt isn't worth the archive or the damage, which is pretty rare because mm-hmm. you're usually gonna have something you want to remove or something you want to archive, and it's worth the exalt, because that might not even end up in the enemy pool, right? Or when you just don't have a Saurian creature, although uh, to my knowledge I've never ended up in that situation quite yet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, there are a few other instances, but they're, they are quite niche. There could be, for example, you have Blast from the Past, and your opponent has one of the mutants that can appear in any house that mm. has the destroyed steel one. And if, let's say, you're on check... And upon utilizing this card, maybe it's because you want to archive a creature, you would actually end up having to choose the only target available if it was one of the oh, creatures that have a steel one, in which case it would take you off check. So you'd have to decide, is that really worth it at that point? And then the other one, again, falling into a similar category is if they have one of the destroyed triggered creatures as one of their 
only remaining or the only remaining target. There's the one that is I can't remember the name of it now. The the imp that when destroyed, if it's on your opponent's turn, you lose three ember. So that's obviously not ideal in Brabble. a situation like that. Brabble, thank you. Or imp specter, if you know what's in your hand at this point is something you don't want to risk being purged. So those are those are just a few instances mm. where when they have a destroyed trigger that will be detrimental to what you want to do for your game state that you may have to actually discard this card instead. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, detrimental destroyed effects uh, would certainly be something to watch out for because it is an enemy creature. That is yes. one other little restriction um, as far as where you're dealing the damage to because I know plenty of things... Uh, there's plenty of instances to blow up your your own stuff. But yeah, you're right. Enemy creatures, uh, another restriction I didn't mention at the start that could, uh, in those edge cases you mentioned, could be detrimental. Yes. And so, yeah, you just have to be watching out because you must, at this point, if it says an enemy creature, if one is available, then that is the enemy creature you must target in that situation as a result. Yeah. Now, I, I, have, I have an apology to make to one card in particular, Blake. Okay. I'm looking at my notes, and I said, shout out to the only kind of bad target for this, Saurian Egg, which okay. I was I was thinking very narrow-mindedly here because Saurian Egg has one power, and I'm like, one power, that's not much. But Saurian Egg has an Amber Pip, which is nice, and Saurian Egg may have just ended up in the discard because Saurian Egg brought in two ready Saurian creatures with plus three power counters on them, or one or two. Oh. And then you could simply blast from the past Saurian Egg again because you'd like, you know, I want to see if I can hatch some more dinos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was reading, I, I noticed you you did not mention it right away because it's in the notes and you didn't, didn't give it the shout out. And I think you're giving it even better shout out now and it also falls into the category of if they have those pesky imps that are going to have destroyed triggers that you don't want you can mm. still get to use it archive it and not have to take the hit because it's only dealing one damage so there is that as well it provides a target that can allow you to skirt around the less favorable enemy creatures being damaged yeah that's right that's right yeah, there's any number of edge cases where you might want the creature totally destroyed or you might not want them damaged at all, um, just depending on, on what's going on. Maybe you're, you're facing down somebody with a, a coward's end and you know you, know, you want to aim for armor <laughs> yeah. with the one damage. You know you don't want to just partially damage anything. That's true. Um, and then yeah. going further than that, because we are in the mass mutation set with this card, is if you're setting up maybe a really nice, fun cleansing wave turn, putting that small amount of damage that you can turn into Ember is uh, mm. another way that you could set up a blast from the past. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. The possibilities are endless is what we're trying to get at here, folks. <laughs> it's a great card. <laughs> yes. It really is. I love seeing it T1, right? You know, uh, somebody mm -hmm. else, if they're going first, they play some dangerous card. I'm like, well, I've got a Saurian and I've got Blast from the Path, so see ya. It's, uh, oh, yeah. it's just so fun. Yeah, if you have not taken the time to indulge in a deck with this card and truly utilize the way we have been speaking about it with our love for it, 
I do recommend taking the time, hop on the Crucy, and uh, take a couple decks for a spin with it and see how you feel because it is it's quite fun. It's a really enjoyable card, and uh, I do highly recommend it. Now, of Indeed. course, we cannot end an episode without the titular segment. We call this one Help from Future Self. This week, I have a Help from Future Self for us. And I've kind of talked about this before, but there is an update to it. And it has to do with, I don't really know if this advice, I'm just going to use this as a platform to share my thoughts. And it's Coda Brobnar. Listening to Bouncing Death Quark, they really actually have, um, especially Kodamarin, has a great love for Coda Brobnar. He talks about it quite frequently with admiration, to say the least. And I find that that house, I think, is the most interesting evolution from it having a really nice essence of being able to fight and gain Ember in a really positive way, which I wouldn't call OP. But since that first iteration, they really went away from that being the core element and it wasn't just fighting and being able to gain ember it just became fighting but not necessarily with that same movement forward in progression of getting to the end game winning state so i recently as i mentioned in the past bought a few decks online based on actually me listening to the bouncing death cork episodes and rekindling my love for certain cards and wanting to see them in action again and one of those was a really saucy Brobnar deck with a couple loot the bodies, a war chest, uh, a ganger. You know, it just had all the tools to have that burst, a war song, like all, all the fun things that encourage you to fight or destroy your opponent's board and you're going to get Ember for doing so. And it's a doozy. It is, it is a fantastic deck. It's not even super highly rated, but it just does the thing that I bought it for so well, which is really satisfying to see. And it has Brobnar as the main house, and it generates a lot of Ember by me destroying my opponent's board. And I feel like you don't get to make that comment that often, that you are being severely rewarded for destroying your opponent's board and not only that you are developing a huge board so you can essentially like get rid of their board and gain ember and then if they don't have a board you can just reap out and gain ember the following turn it is seriously quite a fun thing to experience i don't know zach if you have any decks like that i have a number of really fun call of the archons brobnar brobnar decks um yeah there, there's a lot i really do enjoy and i feel like there's an identity that was uh, was not present at least in uh i think it weakened a bit in age of ascension and, and definitely in worlds, collide. in worlds collide yeah. but like special ability goblins right yes two power elusive goblins that have some damage dealing destruction amber gaining ability like uh now shout out to old boomy and worlds collide but eluder goblin and pingle who annoys um and just real interesting specialty damage dealing stuff like rock hurling giant rogue ogre mm-hmm. tireless crocag um just stuff that was really interesting and not overpowered but was a very strong fight or damage focused ability um 
because uh, that, that's not going to you know gain you 18 amber and win you the game, but it's going to be an amazing tool in your toolbox to get there. Yes, agreed. I I'm a big fan of it. So I again one of those things I, we just said go back and revisit your blast from the past decks if you have not. But finding those those fight reward decks, so you're going to get rewards in the form of ember for fighting, are something to to behold, and they are a lot of fun to play, and it makes you appreciate that fighting part of the game, which I feel sometimes is lessened as of late. But the Brobnar Coda did it the best out of any set, I think, that has existed. So For shout sure. out to them. I, I enjoy them. My 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 future self is actually looking to my past self to find the joy that exists there. We're kind of reversing <laughs> this one around for this this particular yeah. well they're they're just uh they're just uh pay, paying back the favor they've gotten some help from future self so. right yeah exactly <laughs> so that's going to do it for this episode um zach had the fantastic suggestion of next episode we will do the when is this card good but we would like to hear from you So you tell us which card you would like. We're going to compile them and then we'll create some sort of voting system where people can add some sort of emoji to tag on. And whichever one has the most votes, Zach and I will spend some time diving into when is this card good. For sure. I'm excited. Zach, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I am Z-A-C-H underscore Legweek. That's Zach underscore Legweek. Uh, I'm also on Discord. Uh, I'm probably the only person going directly by Zach on most of the Keyforge Discords, but Discord and Twitter are the best places to find me. Fantastic. And you can always find me in the Discord, in the Health and Future Self Discord, or just on Discord as Boulevard Blake number sign 3840. That's BLVD Blake 3840. And we'll see you in another fortnight for a, another episode of Help from Future Self. But until then, folks, stay fortunate.